The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. you to join and follow as I read from God's Word at the end of Genesis 11 and into Genesis 12. To answer your question, what do we undertake after six months of considering a particular subject of sermons that we finished last week? We're going to where I left the bookmark a year ago. We had studied Genesis and came through 11 to a rather epic landmark with the Tower of Babel. And I think I said to you then, we'll be back. Well, we're back, and we're going to look for about 10 weeks now at the next segment of the book of Genesis, the life of God's man, Abraham. Listen as I read the second part of chapter 11 is a long genealogy of mostly unimportant people. That is unimportant to, as far as making any epochal contribution to history. But it's important to show us the chain of descent of people who lived in the time of Noah and following right on down to the day that we're considering now. I pick up at Genesis 11:26. After Terah had lived 70 years, he became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. This is the account of Terah. Terah became the father of Abraham, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran became the father of Lot. While his father, Terah, was still living, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans in the land of his birth. Abraham and Nahor both married. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. The name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Iscah. Now, Sarai was barren. She had no children. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abram, and together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Terah lived 205 years and died in Haran. The Lord had said to Abram, leave your country and your people and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram left as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran and took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, and all the possessions they had accumulated, and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan and arrived there. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. At the same time, Canaanites were in the land. 
the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he went on towards the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. And then Abram set out and continued towards the Negev. Our God, may you instruct us from an ancient text in a current truth what it means to trust you for Jesus' sake. Amen. It is faith that trusts God and obeys His revealed commandments that affects everything about the Bible and Christianity. Faith has been called the key that opens the gate that leads to God. We can't discuss the God of the Bible without exercising faith that minimally believes that He exists and that He speaks. We don't believe those things, we can't even take the first step down the road of Christianity. Faith, someone said, is to eternal things a lot like what money is to the commercial world of business. If you didn't have a system of currency, you can have no economy, no banking, no commerce at all. Well, faith is the money, if you will, that we use to have transactions with God, to know Him and to please Him. Without faith, the Scripture says, it is impossible to please God. It's interesting that we're always talking about faith, and yet we don't often isolate it and take it out, put it under a magnifying glass to examine what it is, where it comes from, how it behaves. What does healthy faith look like? What can it model itself upon? Just over a year ago, last March of 2009, we finished combing through chapters 1 through 11 of Genesis. We studied that material, I think, with profit to some of you to be reminded about foundational truths, things that come at the very beginning of Scripture that reach far and that really determine the cornerstones of the whole truth of the Bible. Creation, the creation of man and woman, marriage, the fall into sin, early human culture, and the great debacle that was uh, the Tower of Babel in the beginning of chapter 11. That's where we stopped. And now we return to Genesis at a point of departure, a point of change, to continue our survey, but this time I'm not headed all the way to the end of the book either. We're just going to look from chapters 12 through 25 and even shorten that into 10 episodes, ten key frames or scenes from the life of this servant of God called Abraham, whose, whose name or subtitle was the friend of God. Now, I want to begin this morning by giving an introductory point that would make the declaration that Abraham's God is our God. There's a widespread misunderstanding when people approach the Bible they think you need two different pairs of glasses. My wife has glasses she wears for all the time, and she has a special pair that she only wears at the piano because she needs a certain focal length there to see piano music that wouldn't work for her to wear all the time when she needs the trifocals. 
Well, there are people who think you need Old Testament glasses and New Testament glasses. And you're really dealing, they would say, with two different gods and two different sets of rules for salvation. Absolutely false. There's no person evident in the Bible that more shows the falsehood of that and shows the unity to us of Old Testament and New than the man Abraham. Paul, when he wrote in Romans chapter 4 and Galatians chapter 3, saw what Abraham had done as the key uniting factor of Old Testament and New when he said Abraham believed God, and that was counted to him as righteousness, and clearly in the declaration of the gospel of justification by grace through faith in Paul's letters. That is what we need to do as New Testament believers as well. You could easily say that apart from Jesus, Abraham is the most prominent personality in the Bible. He really dominates the landscape because of the things that flowed from his action. Now, when did he live? For basic purposes, we would say this, about the same time before the cross of Christ as we are after it, approximately 2,000 B.C. So it's rather interesting that with the cross in the middle, here we are in our time, and that same time earlier than the life of Jesus lived this man Abraham. Now, isn't it kind of fascinating to consider that we had 11 chapters or 10 and a half chapters that dealt with issues of creation, the founding of man and woman as God's special creations in His image, the fall into sin, all the early events, Noah, the downfall of man, all the way to the catastrophe of the Tower of Babel. Ten and a half chapters, compact chapters, packed with material as we look through them. Now we see God doing something new because the next 14 chapters of the Bible are devoted to the lifespan and the activities of one man. So obviously Abraham's pretty important. God is narrowing things down here to say, look what I'm doing in this man. He was born, we know, in the ancient city of Ur, which was in the eastern part of Iraq. Before there were the wars going on there in Iraq in the 1920s and 30s, Ur was excavated and many interesting things were discovered. Abraham came from a a great metropolitan center. There was the equivalent of a university there, a great library huge temples, but the people of Ur were idol worshipers. They worshiped the moon. Now, we know that when we talk about other prominent people in the Scripture, Moses, David, Paul, these were people who had a considerable package of talents. Moses had latent leadership gifts from his Egyptian schooling and training. David certainly was a leader and a singer of songs to God. Paul was a great intellect. You could say, I can see things of why God chose those men. The interesting thing about Abram, as he's first called until his name gets changed a little later, Abram doesn't seem to have any of those outstanding gift packages in his resume. And as a matter of fact, when you begin to get into his story, you realize that it seems God puts him forward as a man who is known for his relative ordinariness. No great intellect, not starting out as a a deeply spiritual man, 
Not a leader in any tremendous sense that many, many people look to him for his wisdom. He did one thing, and he did it supremely well. He believed God, and he acted on what he believed God had revealed. I think of Abram with a great deal of hope from that because you and I don't imagine that we're ever going to lead a nation the way Moses did or, or David did or have be the tremendous theological intellect that Paul was. But we can do what Abram did, and in fact, we must. We must echo the faith of this man who implicitly believed what God had revealed and took God at his word. Now, you might ask, well, what is it? If we're at a point of departure, a point recognized by all Genesis commentators that new things begin in chapter 12, what is the point of departure? Or ask it this way, what is God up to at this point in history? What seems to be the divine plan? Well, it seems to us that in the story of Abraham, the Lord is showing us his initiative of grace to establish a nation who are going to be his model nation. He is striving to establish on earth a minority group who will display trust and devotion to him. And you know, of course, that led to the nation called Israel. But it's not only the the literal nation of Israel that's a concern, but the larger nation of Israel of which you and I are a part, spiritual Israel that exists today of every man or woman who has true faith in the Lord our God and the Savior he brought in Jesus Christ. Now, I can warn you in advance, you're not always going to admire Abraham. In fact, early on, if you uh, just glance ahead and see what we'll deal with next week in the second half of chapter 12, you'll say, this guy's a scoundrel. Not admirable at all. He treats his wife in, in ways that no wife would or should tolerate today. And we want to say, why would God put up with a guy like this? But I want to tell you in advance, even before we get to those portions, if you're ready to ask that question about Abraham, just turn the question around and make it point to yourself and say, why does God put up with me? Why is God still merciful to me after all my actions before him? I can tell you for a certainty that we have no sense that God was somehow gazing from afar upon history and saying, where can I find a man who has in him the most stellar gifts of spirituality, who already loves me and already trusts me, and I can come down and work in the life of that man and build upon his faith and make it something great. That is not what happens here. It's more as if God was saying, where will I find a weak, unstable pagan descended from idol worshipers with no heritage of faith at all, who's done nothing particular to merit my choice of him? Where can I find such a man to call out and single out and stir up in him faith to trust me so that when the world sees this man trusting me, they will say, why anybody can do that? If he can, that's the kind of man Abram is. And so secondly, besides the introduction of thinking of Abram's God as our God, I bring you to see God's call for this man in the early part of chapter 12 and the promises that were attached to that call. 
Now, we could go into other passages of Scripture, and I don't have time to read them all, but there are other places, Old Testament and New, that talk about Abraham that help us piece the picture together and understand that it was while he still lived in Ur, in that pagan environment, the idol-worshiping culture, that God first called him. Our text in verse 31 of chapter 11 says, Terah, the father, took his son Abraham uh, down to Canaan. Well, that's said out of respect because when a father and son journey together, that's what you're going to say. But we would be able to believe from what the Scripture says that the impulse to go anywhere was the impulse of God speaking to Abram. And it was Abram influencing his father Terah to go and make this initial journey by a compulsive sense of the Holy Spirit stirring in this man. He didn't have a a book or any kind of printed instructions. He didn't find a magic tablet that said, go to Canaan. But he did experience some overwhelming stirring of the Holy Spirit saying to him that he must be somewhere else and that God would show him where that was to be. And so, apparently, he influenced his father and his nephew and By the way, nephew Lot would have been his natural heir, so it's not so strange that he came along. And here he came, and they came to this town named Haran, another idol-worshiping, moon-worshiping town where their kinds of folks lived. And dad said, Terah said, far enough. You've got me out here on this journey. Here's people that are like us. I don't want to travel anymore. We're settling here. And so for a period of time, they were there in Haran, up north of the land of Canaan, and they stayed there. And eventually, it says, Terah also died there. He didn't go any further. However, and we think probably before Terah died, Abram, age 75, the middle-aged son, that's what you are at 75 in this culture, got up, packed the tent, took Lot in tow, and headed out for the wilderness. Now, it's pretty amazing when you think about it. His prospects weren't very great. Age was against him. What are most of us doing at age 75? Well, you can figure it out, you know. You've moved into Brethren Village or Willow Valley. You know, Abram, isn't there an apartment for me where things can be safe and secure and my needs will be taken care of? This is where you want to be at age 75. You don't go out on some new risky venture. Another thing against him, his wife is declared barren and childless. She's not had any children to this point, and nobody's looking for it after the age of 75. And then, too, just the question of his sanity. He's a settled man. He has some measure of wealth. It says that there are apparently a lot of people and things that had to be uh, taken as he left. Verse 5 of chapter 12 his possessions and the people they had acquired. He had slaves. He had an entourage. He had animals. And he picks all this up and goes out in this uncertain movement into the middle of nowhere. People must have said, you're crazy. They must have said, well, you know, if they ever talked about this family, they said, oh, yeah, you know, uh, We've got these these folks who came here. Nahor, he's still living here. He's quite an enterprising fellow. He's still living here in in Haran. And and Terah, well, he died. And, And you know, they had this other crazy son, Abram. He's gone. He'll never amount to anything. That's what the people of Haran would have said about Abram. 
But notice how, as he is challenged, and however God's challenge came to him, whether in so many words or, as I would believe, in a great, sweeping, overpowering sense of the Holy Spirit on him, God impressed on him a great vision of what was going to result. And verses 2 and 3 have it in fantastic terms. If you think about how would a an individual in this world think, uh, you know, I'm going to make my mark on this world. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to have a famous name. I'm going to found a great movement, and many people are going to follow that movement for generations to come. And in fact, the blessing of that movement is going to flow out to the world for generations and generations. Well, that's exactly what God promised. You go and do this impossible-sounding, almost foolish-sounding thing, and here's what's going to happen. You'll have a great nation, and I'll bless you. Your name will be great. You'll be a blessing. Your enemies will be my enemies. Your friends will be my friends. And people for generations will say, there was a blessed man. Notice it in these verses. God says, I will bless, I will bless, I will bless, I will bless. Five times in those two verses. Writing about this passage, John Calvin in his commentary on Genesis says, I quote you, it's as if God in effect said to Abraham, I command you to go forth with your eyes closed. I forbid you to inquire where I shall lead you until you have renounced your past country and given yourself up totally to me. That's asking a lot. That's asking a tremendous amount. But Notice the blessing that God promised would go with the obedience. And the blessing was greater than the obedience. Do you remember when Jesus called 12 disciples to leave their nets, leave their tax tables, leave what they were doing, start out fresh, make a break, and follow him without a backward glance? I used to think that was incredible when I would hear in Sunday school the stories of the disciples meeting this man, knowing very little about him. And he said, come, follow me. I'll make you a fisher of men. Boom, off they went. There doesn't seem to be any question. And I used to think, wow, you know, how do you just depart like that. I mean, you think about it. If somebody approaches you in the midst of your, I hope you have perhaps some job security, and somebody comes along and says, come do this new thing. It'll sound harebrained, and there's no income, there's no salary, but come and follow me, and you'll be among the great people of the world. Would you follow? There had to be something stirring in the one who called In the case of Jesus making that call, in the case of God by his Spirit speaking to the heart of Abram, somehow stirring up the initial bud of this thing that we call faith. So that Abram and those 12 disciples of Jesus were able to say, well, Lord, I believe you. I've got a lot of unbelief, but help me with the unbelief part and get me through. The Hebrew experts tell us that the command of God in Genesis 12.1 is, is an imperative. It's a command. It's not a suggestion. Not God saying, it'd be a nice idea if you'd leave your country. In fact, the old King James translation of verse 1 is interesting. It uses an expression we wouldn't use. The Lord says, get thee out. Well, if I come and knock on your door and say in an emphatic voice, get thee out of thy house... First of all, you'll say, who is this nut? But secondly, you'll say, wow, he really wants me to leave. Is the roof on fire? What's the matter? 
there's an emphatic urgency to the call of God. That's why in theology we call God's call to faith an effectual call. It's a call that has the power to stir up the response that is desired for it. Martin Luther said about Abram's choice here, he said, faith is a lively, powerful thing, not a drowsy and idle thought. Faith, Luther said, does not float lazily on a compound like a duck. It's much more like water in a kettle brought to a rolling boil by a good strong fire. You ever see water when it's really heated and it's really boiling and rolling in the kettle? Luther said, that's the power that you should think of that God stirs up in faith. His call stirs up the powerful response. Yes, there's a cost. Yes, you're going against logic and against human convention to to do this thing. But who's calling? Who's the one promising? Romans 4.17, if you would consider it unreasonable or impossible that a great nation is going to come from a 75-year-old man and his wife who's never had a child, Romans 4.17 says why this promise is going to be fulfilled by, quote, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that do not exist. This is a response, this faith response that says, I expect God to do miracles if he's going to fulfill his wonderful promise. Well, thirdly, today we come to the end part of our text, verses 4 to 9 of Genesis 12, to see what I would call a believer's pilgrim response to God's call to faith. Now, where did pilgrim come from? Maybe you thought those were the folks who came over on the Mayflower in 1620 to found a colony in Plymouth so we could have Thanksgiving plays with little children dressed up like turkeys and Indians. Well, those were pilgrims indeed, but pilgrim is actually a noble word, a biblical word. It's a word that signifies anyone who goes out launched on a walk of faith looking to God for total direction and casting their whole destiny upon the accomplishment of that which God calls them to do. In Hebrews 11, that roll call of the heroes of faith, Abraham, of course, is named. In Hebrews 11, 9 and 10 says, Abraham was the original Christian pilgrim because by faith he lived in tents looking forward to a city with foundations whose builder and architect is God. He was content to be a pilgrim and not a colonist because God was calling him. And he was ready by the power of that call that God made to take God at his word. Do you ever consider the people you believe who tell you many things that influence your life? Maybe you believe the newspaper. I know people who think, you know, if something's in the newspaper, it has to be true, right? Just wait till you're involved in the article and you see the five mistakes that didn't happen that way at all. But, well, uh, well, if Congress makes it a law, it's got to be true. Well, Fox News reported it, so I know it must be reliable. Well, we believe all kinds of sources. But why would we not stake ourselves to trust the most reliable source of all, the word of the infinite personal God? 
1 John 5.9 says we accept man's testimony all the time, but God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God. What is faith? It's accepting the authority of the source with the greatest integrity in all the world, having the right object of your faith, in other words. Now, quickly, we see just a couple things to observe in this as verse 6 and 7 tell us of things that maybe we just dismiss, names of Bible places that you just kind of pass by and say, what do they mean? It says, Abram traveled the land as he got there into, into Canaan, and he came to the great tree of Morah at Shechem. Well, take out a Bible dictionary sometime when you're reading and find out what, well, why would, was that important? Shechem, you would find out, is the great crossroads at the center of the land of Canaan. It was, it was literally the middle of the land. And so God was saying that Abram came down into the middle of the land where all the trade routes crossed, and this, this uh, oak tree at Morad was thought to be a place where prophets and, and false prophets and soothsayers came and gave out their predictions about people's lives. What does that mean? It means he was in the center of the land where the people were active, where false religion was very much alive. And what does it say happened when Abraham got there? Don't miss it. Verse 7. The Lord appeared to Abram. That is not incidental. God didn't do that first back in Ur. He did that when the man of faith got to where he was led to be. How did God appear? We don't know. We're not given a snapshot of it. But somehow... God made his presence and himself understood in a powerful way through a vision or something so that he assured this man, Abram, you've done what you were asked to do. And as a result, what did Abraham do immediately? He built altars twice in this text. And he called on the name of the Lord and worshiped. You see how the pattern's beginning to develop? God also calls us by the gospel of Jesus Christ. He calls us not by some uh, individual influence, but by the book of his truth. And he says, look, here, come to Christ and find life, find forgiveness, find all things made new. Come and follow him. As Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. We too are called to make a break. We too are called to stake our futures and our destiny upon a reliable source that speaks truth. Abram has much more to teach us in weeks to come. But we've seen this much already. The reliability of faith rests squarely on the integrity of the person in whom it puts ultimate trust. We've also seen that true faith believes the bare word of God who can communicate His will and who does not lie. We've seen that true faith is God stirring us up to step out and take a risk to obey His calling. We've further seen that true faith finds courage to make the first step and all the succeeding steps supplied by the one who calls. Faith isn't something we bring to God. It's something God stirs up in us so we can respond to Him. 
And then we've seen that true faith delights to build altars of worship along its pathway to call on the name of the Lord even in the midst of enemy territory. True faith continues on the pilgrimage that God launches us upon until the day that the Lord will say to us, now, no more pilgrimage, you're truly home. Our Father, we pray that you would teach us Abrahamic faith. It's pretty startling to see this man emerging from nowhere, understanding that you spoke, and risking all to go where you told him. And yet you ask nothing less. Today, as we consider what it means to follow Christ, stir in us that rolling boil of a faith that would respond, that would take action, that would consider it the most natural thing of all, to trust you and to go where you tell us. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.